All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. Good to hear your voices as we sing God's praises together. We're going to study his word, so I hope you got one of these. Open it up to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 1. And if you're a guest with us this morning, it's such a joy, such a privilege to have you here. Thank you for being with us. We are picking up where we left off last week from our study of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, the early goings surrounding the birth of Jesus and the events that led up to it. So this is what we're going to come to in this passage uh, is the first Christmas carol. It's, it would be known as the Magnificat, Mary's, Mary's song, and it has been whispered in monasteries over the centuries, and it has been set to music with kettle drums and orchestras by Johann Sebastian Bach. It has inspired uh, great reflection over the course of the centuries. And, and it's not only a song about Mary's personal Godward trust, but it is a kind of um, collective gathering of the, the faithful people of God, the kinds of things God's faithful people have said about him and his saving work for centuries leading up to Mary and leading from Mary to now. So I hope this will be encouraging to all of us in our faith in Jesus, starting in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1, if you'd follow along as I read. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her. That baby in Elizabeth is John the Baptist. The baby leaped inside of her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. So you ever receive a gift, maybe as a child, Christmas morning and you receive a gift and you open the gift and inside that gift is another gift. You ever had the, the bonus gift? Right? We were wrapping, Paul and I were wrapping yesterday and we actually have for um, that set up for Christmas morning. Somebody's going to wake up and there's going to be a kind of, it's a small thing but it's related to the larger thing. So there's a bonus gift, a gift wrapped inside the other gift. So when God gives the gift of faith, when he opens our eyes to see the glory 
of Jesus and to respond with trusting faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There's another gift wrapped inside that gift. Inside the gift of faith is the gift of song. And what we see here in this text is this Godward faith, this Godward trust, and it comes with this Godward song that sings to the glory of, of the one whose name is holy, of the one who is, has power over everything, and the one who is merciful, not only to Mary, but to all generations. It's this Godward hope that fills her life. Has the, has the gospel given you a song yet? Have you received the gift of faith in such a way that it brings with it this song of hope that is buoyant even in trials, this song, this irrepressible song of hope in God and what he will do, what he can do, what he's up to in our lives and in the world. It changes everything. I talked about Malcolm Muggeridge a little bit last week, a fascinating character, grew up atheist. Actually, his dad was a committed socialist by philosophy. And, uh, and so Malcolm Muggeridge actually came up nurtured in that philosophical environment. He was a very bright young man, and he decided that early in his life, in the 1930s, he wanted to move to Stalinist Russia to see how heavenly socialism was. And when he got there, he discovered it wasn't heavenly at all. His eyes were open to the atrocities that were being seen there in that time. But while he was there, he saw something amazing, something that changed the whole trajectory of his life. And here's what he would write. In Kiev, where I found myself on a Sunday morning, on an impulse, I turned into a church where a service was in progress. It was packed tight, but I managed to squeeze myself against a pillar from where I could survey the congregation and look up at the altar. Young and old, peasants and townswomen, parents and children, even a few in uniform, it was a diverse assembly. Never before or since have I participated in such worship the sense conveyed of turning to God in great affliction was overpowering. For instance, where in the liturgy, the congregation says, there is no help for them except from God. What intense feeling they put into those words. In their minds, I knew, as in my own mind, was a picture of those desolate, abandoned villages, the hunger and the hopelessness, the cattle trucks being loaded with humans in the dawn light. Where were they to turn for help, not to the Kremlin, nor to the forces of democracy in the West. Every possible human agency was found lacking, so only God remained, and to God they turned, with a passion, a dedication, a humility impossible to convey, I love this, they took me with them. <laughs> I felt closer to God than I ever had before, or am likely to, again. What was he struck by? He was struck by a sense of the nearness of God to his people, even in the midst of their pain. It was striking to him, those words. Every human agency was lacking. Only God remained, and to God they turned. That's this, this sense of Godward faith that we're gonna see here in our text. Actually, three qualities we're going to look at this morning. Three qualities of Godward faith here. One is, is this. Godward faith is strengthened by his people. Godward faith is strengthened by his people. So there's this beautiful display of biblical community at work 
right here in our passage that we could just skip over and miss if we're not careful. So remember what happened last week, if you were here last Sunday, where the angel visits Mary and says, you will give birth to a son, right? And he will be the son of the most high. He will be the son of God, right? And the angel tells Mary all these things and she's perplexed and she's wondering, how can this be because I'm a virgin? And then the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. By the way, down the road a ways, four days journey away is your cousin Elizabeth and she's pregnant with a guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is going to, in days to come, her son, Elizabeth's son, is going to introduce your son to the world. And she's already six months pregnant. And she's been, as you know, Mary, she's been childless all these years. And she's well advanced in age. So she's beyond the years of childbirth. And so Mary, right in our passage, right after that encounter, in verse 39, Mary's packing her bags and she's headed for a four-day journey. Where? To Elizabeth's house. And she gets there, and the moment she gets in, and she shouts a word of greeting on her way in, and John the Baptist does a somersault inside of, of Elizabeth's belly. And there's this miraculous exchange that's going on there as the Holy Spirit is revealing things that Elizabeth couldn't know, but it's being deposited into her heart and into her mind for the encouragement of Mary. What was it that the Holy Spirit allowed Elizabeth to see in that moment, the first is this, the child will arrive in fulfillment of the Lord's promise. So this child that's promised to you, Mary, is arriving in fulfillment of the Lord's promise. And notice the way that she commends Mary's trust in the word of God. Look at verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Now, don't miss what Elizabeth is saying in this passage. So she's saying, the point that we just reviewed, the child will arrive in fulfillment of the Lord's promise, and she's saying, the next point, the child will himself be the Lord. So she uses the word Lord twice with two different references in verse 45, who is the Lord? The Lord is the one who spoke to Mary about the baby, And then two verses earlier, who's the Lord in verse 43? The Lord is the baby, the mother of my Lord. In other words, the reason that there's this exultant, joyous response of Elizabeth is, Elizabeth is saying, it's just dawning on me, not that the Lord is coming, but that he's here. He's in my house the mother of my Lord of all houses in the countryside. Why would God come to my house? The Lord is here under my roof and it's a blessing of all blessings. And this is the, this is the central, these, the stuff of creeds and councils that Jesus Christ, the child, even in the womb of Mary, is God. He's not just a man. He's not just a baby. He is the eternal son of God who became man, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That would be crystallized and captured and sung through the centuries. Even Article 2 of the Apostles' Creed is this, and I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The truth that Jesus Christ is not just a man, but he is the Lord of the universe and the son 
of God, sharing fullness of glory with the Father and the Spirit, right? That has been sung through the ages and it has profound implications. It sits right at the center of Christian faith. It has profound implications that shocked all of society once the coin dropped. So in the early centuries of the church, that was the statement that would be made in the baptismal. All the people would come to the same baptismal waters and actually in the early church, they would enter into the baptismal waters naked, And you couldn't tell the difference between the rich and the poor. Couldn't tell the difference between the slave and the free. We wear white robes to get the same thing done, right? Praise God, we found another way to do this, right? But that's that's what they did. You couldn't tell because all the people who enter the waters are children of God, and they all claim Jesus as Lord. And, And that equalizing effect of the baptismal waters had a profound effect on even societal structures in the Roman Empire. Church historian Ben Evans would write these words. When early believers entered the waters and took the name of Jesus on their lips, the tectonic plates shifted. The slow revolution had begun. The ancient institution of slavery didn't vanish all at once. But when slaves and free persons stood side by side and confessed that Jesus is Lord, the days of slavery were numbered. It's a central article of Christian faith. Friends, as Christians, our faith is fixed on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was was not just a good teacher. He was not just a moral person. He was not just a prophet. He was God. He is God. He will always be God. He lived a perfect life in obedience to God's law and God's commands and then he hung on the cross and was crucified and then he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and then he ascended on high and was coronated king over all the kings and Lord over all the lords and he will rule and reign until the end of time. That's the article of faith. It all centers in this fact that Jesus Christ, the the divine name belongs to him. He is the Lord. The Spirit fills Elizabeth in verse 41. Don't miss this. The Spirit fills Elizabeth. And what does she do next? The overflow of the filling of the Holy Spirit leads to her pouring affirmation over young Mary. So Elizabeth's probably 60, 70 years old. Mary's probably 14 years old. And here's this woman of great faith. And she says, Mary, you are to be commended because you're banking your whole life on the promise of God. You believe the word of God, Mary. Blessed are you because you believe that he would fulfill what he has promised. You know, can we be the kind of church that doesn't take persevering faith in our brothers and sisters for granted as if it's just always easy to believe? Is it? Let's talk about Let's talk about the generation coming after us. Let's talk about kids here at the Church of Brook Hills. Let's talk about kids at the Church of Brook Hills who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And there's gonna come a day in each of their lives when the cost of following Jesus is gonna seem too high. There's gonna come a day when the hedge of protection that they've enjoyed for however long, it feels like that hedge of protection has been blasted to smithereens. That day is gonna come. It's gonna feel like the bottom's falling out and the reality of suffering is gonna feel like it's just too much. It's just too much, right? And when they fight the fight of faith 
and they come out on the far side of trial and suffering and brokenness, you know what's our privilege, our sacred privilege and responsibility is to be there at the finish line shouting, you believed. Against all odds, in the throes of it, in the thick of it, right? You, you believed. When everything was on the line, you continued to trust Jesus Christ. You believed God's word. Well done. Well done. Mary's song comes on the heels of a sister's encouragement. Did you see that connection? Mary's song comes on the heels of a sister's encouragement. The moment after Elizabeth says, you believe, blessed are you because you've believed in Mary's. Here comes the song. The Godward faith gives way to this Godward song. Strengthened by his people, second, rejoicing in his provision. And she's rejoicing in his provision. You see in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And if you say, why? Why are you magnifying him and why are you rejoicing in him? She says, I'll tell you in verse 49. Because the mighty one has done great things for me. Look, now she's testifying, isn't she? She's singing her story. She sings her story. My spirit rejoices in God. My savior, it's personal. It's not just some collective story in ancient past. She'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, it's mine. Salvation is mine. He has been merciful to me. Me, me. She uses those personal words. My spirit rejoices in God. My savior. Who, who do the strong rejoice in? What are the strong rejoicing? The strong rejoice in ongoing health and vitality. What are the rich rejoicing? The rich rejoice in, in security and success. What do the ambitious rejoice in? The ambitious rejoice in opportunities and platform. It's only the sinful who rejoice in a savior. It's only the sinful who rejoice in a savior and that's what she's doing, right? What kind of rescue does Jesus bring? Remember John the Baptist? He's in the womb of his mother. He'll be born in three months. And then 30 years later, you check him out. He's in the Jordan River. And here comes Jesus the Christ. And he says, so that the world is clear on the purpose of his coming, let me tell you who this is. Behold, the Lamb of God, he's come to take away the sins of the world. It's John the Baptist saying, this is our biggest problem. Whatever you thought your biggest problem was five minutes ago, update, this is your biggest problem. You've sinned against a holy God and judgment falls to those who have sinned and he's come to handle it. He's come to deal with our sins. To, our sins, our transgressions will be laid on his chest and he'll be opened wide on the cross and he will bear our iniquities in his body on the tree. That's Godward faith and she's saying, the Lord has done great things for me. The church has been singing for 2,000 years. He's done great things for me. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you the question, has the gospel given you that song? Do you, do you sing like you're saved? Like you've been rescued? Does, it, does your worship waft of someone who has been set free? 
That's what this song is supposed to do, right? We worship Jesus Christ not because it's the thing that we do this time of year. It's not a sentimental, syrupy kind of thing. We worship Jesus Christ because he, being God, took on human flesh. We worship Jesus Christ because he lived a perfect life in obedience to the law of God and he hung in our place for our redemption and then he rose triumphant over hell and the grave. That's why we worship Jesus Christ. It's only the sinful who rejoice in a savior and it's only the humble who are happy to see the Lord magnified. When he gets magnified, that's what we wanted all along, right? That's what Mary says, my soul magnifies. It makes much of it, blows up and says, look how big. That's what magnification does. Look how big he is. Look how sufficient he is. Look how strong he is. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's Godward faith. Godward faith at Christmas. The thing that we do here in the month of December, the global offering, it's, it's all fueled by verse 46, What do we do when we give and we dig into what this world calls treasure for the advancement of the gospel among those who have never heard? What are we doing? What are we doing? The motivation behind that giving is, Lord, be magnified in all the earth. Let your glory spread across the planet. May your hope reach the ends of the earth. Look, Mary sings this song of mercy, and it's not just for me. She says it's for me, but then she says, it's inexhaustible mercy. It's for generation after generation after generation. You won't find the bottom of this mercy. So you keep spreading it to the ends of the earth. It's that awesome. It's to sing this great Christmas carol in light of what Jesus did in his dying and rising is essentially to announce to the whole world all who look to Jesus Christ can live. All who look to him can live forever. Godward faith is strengthened by his people. Godward faith rejoices in his provision. And third, Godward faith is confident in his promises. Confident in his promises. Look at the words in verse 51. He has scattered, that is God. God has scattered the proud. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy. Yet many um, scholars believe that Mary's words hearken back to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2 because a lot of the same language is used in Hannah's song centuries earlier. Some believe that even on that four-day journey on her way to Elizabeth's house out in the countryside, what she perhaps was meditating on was that those words from Hannah about a miracle child. So that when she got this encouragement from Elizabeth, out springs this word-saturated song but it's hard to locate if it was the song of Hannah or if it was some other thing, right? Because she's, she's not quoting verbatim, but the language she uses is evocative of all this Old Testament imagery of how God flips the script and saves the humble and the rich are sent away empty. They've been boasting over God's people century after century and God comes in and he saves the, the downcast. It's the story of his people. What does 
What does Mary know, right? The, the answer to the question that is posed in the modern song, Mary, did you know? The answer is yes, she did. She did know. Well, what did she know? Here's what she knew. She knew the future is fixed by the promise of God. She knew that. She's not just singing about history. So the kinds of language forms that she's using, and we're going to get into a little bit of technicalities here. I'm going to read to you a quote from uh, a scholar named Robert Stein. And for a second, we're going to have to geek out about some language, but then he's going to bring it home for all of us in a second. Here's what he says about the language that's used from verse 51, these past tense verbs. Here's what he says. The tense of the verb and the following verbs is best understood as a futuristic aorist or the equivalent of the prophetic perfect in Hebrew. Here's what that means. It describes the future work of God's Son with the certainty of a past event. Mary saw as already accomplished what God would do through her Son. That's awesome. That's Godward faith. She says, I know the child is still in the womb, but here's what he's going to do. And she speaks about it with such a settled certainty. It's as if it happened yesterday. It's as if it's already taken place. He's going to come and thrones of the mighty get toppled. It's as if it's already happened. That's how certain God's word is in her heart. She knows the future is fixed by the promise of God, and she knows something else. She knows every mountain of human pride will be brought low. The burial ceremony of the Habsburg emperors it was a fairly elaborate ceremony, and, and some of the ceremony was put together in order to, to teach a lesson to those who were in attendance on that day. So there's this grand entourage outside, uh, and it arrives at the closed doors of the monastery sanctuary, the monastery chapel, and a herald knocks on the mighty doors, on the gate, and from within inside, the abbot was heard to ask this question, who are you who knocks? And then a herald representing the emperor, the late emperor, said, I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hun Hungary, the herald replied. I don't know you, the abbot said, tell me again who you are. I am Franz Joseph, Emperor of Austria, King of Hungary, Bohemia, Galicia, Duke of Styria, and Corinthia. We still don't know you. Who are you? The herald, hearing this, knelt down and said, I am Franz Joseph, a poor sinner, humbly begging for God's mercy. Then thou mayest enter. And the gates were flung open. And it was a teaching device for everyone in attendance that God does not look on the riches of the wealthy, the pomp and circumstance of kings and emperors, he looks on the humble and he says, you may enter. That's why formative passages for the centuries of the Christian church reach all the way back to ancient prophecy from Jeremiah himself who said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. That's what you'll be tempted to boast in if you're wise. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. That's what you'll be tempted to trust in if you're wealthy. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength, he said, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That's the truth. That's Godward faith. Every mountain of human pride will be brought low, but every lowly sinner who looks to Christ will be satisfied. 
You see that in verse 53? He has satisfied the hungry with good things. Grace finds the humble who are looking to Jesus. Grace finds the penitent who realize we cannot earn God's acceptance by our moral scorecard. Grace finds the prayerful who are not relying on our own strength. It's the story of God's people. Time after time, through the ages. You know what Christmas is? Christmas is the end of thinking we're good enough to earn the grace of God. It puts the final nail in that coffin. Here's what Martin Luther said centuries ago. God receives none but those who are forsaken. Restores health to none but those who are sick. Gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. (laughs) How good is the good news? Look, that... That's the church on message. May we be marked as a church by this Godward, gospel-centered faith.